Solve for X is sponsored by Lessons from Super Mario, our game design thinking mini course. Learn to tap into the power of video games and leverage it for your business. We're partnering with Stanford University lecturer Chris Bennett to bring you a bite-sized but supercharged course designed to help you build engagement loops that keep your customers coming back for more. Visit https forward slash forward slash bit dot ly slash gdt hyphen mini or look for the link in the show notes for this episode to sign up. Okay, so I have three things so from you that the listener should learn, change, or do in terms of um, starting a new venture. A couple of fronts. One is, um, the, I think you, you've kind of indirectly alluded to this already in our conversation, and that's the value of the co-founder or co-founders. Right? Obviously, mm-hmm. you don't want too many, uh, but, but you need at least one. And I think that's sort of fairly established wisdom, but I think one thing that's often um, undervalued and underestimated is the complexity of getting those, getting the right fit in co-founder. And it can be quite tough to part ways with the co-founder, especially if you've kind of, you know, been together early on and then kind of, you know, decide to go your separate ways. So one thing I've done over the last couple of companies I've started is um, explicitly create a no harm, no foul period of time, right? Not that that it solves all problems, but I generally do a prototyping exercise with new founders, especially if it's a founder I've not worked with before, um, or I've not had prior sort of, you know, uh, some sort of association. Um, fortunately, that my current company, both my co-founders and I work together in different contexts, so I know how well they work and yeah. and I know my strengths and weaknesses in the in the context of theirs. Um, but I think people often underestimate the complexity and the difficulty of finding the co-founder. And it's so important, I think, because as you, as you said, you know, when you have having a low, the likelihood that your co-founder is always also having a low is very low. And keeping each other honest is part of sort of the, the, the good kind of mm-hmm. tension you need. Um, so over the last several years, what I've done is I've actually gone through the proto- prototyping experience with the co-founder and then collectively deciding is this going to be worth continuing, right? Did we work well together? And we, like my current company, for example, uh, even that work with my co-founders before, we had a no, go, no go, like on our calendars, right? Mm-hmm. After, after we started working about, I think about three months out where we were like, with extreme discipline would get together and go, <laughs> how did it go, right? Um, yeah. did, we, did we like this experience? Are, are we, you know, are we making progress, even if it's, not statistically significant, do we feel generally good about everything? And I think more often than not, you know, over the last you know, 12, 15 years, when I've advised startups, the thing that causes collapse early on, not late stage, but like early on has been the kind of co-founder friction and not sort of um, taking that new dimension, even if you're friends, that new added dimension of being co-founders is a completely new, new territory. And, and I think, if you don't pay attention to that, I think you're, going, you're in deep, deep trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to find ways to vet your co-founders, but you have to have them, I think. Uh, I don't think you can really, um, you, you do yourself a disservice by trying to go it alone. 
uh, yeah. kind of, uh, one thing that I've sort of learned the hard way. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very lonely and you just run out of energy. It's um, the, the African yep. saying about, you know, um, you know, you can go farther together. You don't go as fast, but you go farther. I think I would, I would agree. The communication overhead and staying in sync does take up energy, but it's well worth the, worth the cost, especially yeah. early on where things are just undefined, you know, noisy and chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what's your, what's your second thing? The second thing is, is a melange of things, but um, is sort of um, beginning as an outsider in Silicon Valley, you know, I, I moved here from Texas. Before that I was in South Carolina, you know, mm -hmm. so not exactly sort of the hotbed of entrepreneurial tech, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that, was very intimidating is um, learning to ignore the myth-making that happens in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a weird thing, right? I, I, I don't think you necessarily see this sort of thing if you look at you know, entrepreneur blogs and stuff, right? Because yeah. those are the examples of that myth-making. I think it's human nature to sort of say, you know, um, if you're gonna talk about yourself and your endeavors in a public uh, you know, in a forum, you wanna say how, positive things, just, just natural. You don't want necessarily focus on the negatives and all the troubles, right? Um, I think one of the things I found really intimidating early on was, wow, everyone is perfect. Right, you know? right. They found the perfect, their product market fit perfect, their designs are perfect. And then why, why are my, my things so terrible? Uh, and why, why is it so hard? hard? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, one of my early companies, uh, was a Squarespace before Squarespace, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, um, what I did is I, I literally was on the ground selling, going to restaurants and saying mm -hmm. to the owners, don't you, need, you know, don't you need something where you can update your prices when you, when you don't have to ask your, your nephew to update it or your, your friend, you, you're paying away too much money to kind of create a terrible website, right? And, I, and it was such a slog because I just kept seeing these other companies doing so well, perfectly. And I was like, I must be doing something wrong <laughs> mm -hmm. because I'm having a hell of a time getting a mass audience. But even though I think the product is fantastic, right? So I ended up actually not following through on that, even though the functioning product and I had a few customers, but I didn't have 10,000 customers mm -hmm. out there. Uh, so one of the things I learned the hard way is ignore some of the myth-making, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and be real about sort of, how difficult building things are, even if you think that you have a dynamite idea, you know, it's, it's so hard to prepare for that, right? The, the amount of work. So, um, and unfortunately the blogosphere, whatever you want to call it, yeah. does, doesn't help, <laughs> right? It's very rare you see kind of a, a more confessional uh, post from an entrepreneur, you know, it's usually even the most negative scenario is like, oh, it's a great journey and we found a nice, landing spot, you know, um, mm -hmm. it's not, it's never, oh, we struggled, we couldn't get custom attraction and we just need to get rid of this thing because we spent, even though we spent five years on it, you know, it's, right. um, so I think I would encourage everybody to just fight that myth making that happens and find sort of unpeel that onion and see kind of what's actually happening at these companies and maybe not get into the comparison game to begin with, you know, not try to sort of right. have, have external yardsticks, which is very difficult to do admittedly, but having a co-founder who believes in the idea helps a lot, obviously. Mm -hmm. 
And the other thing is, I think, I, I, you know, uh, this going back to the earlier topics we talked about today is the you won't need it philosophy. <laughs> you know, I tend to underbuild and I'm prepared for embarrassment and rejection all the time. <laughs> right. So, uh, one of the things I, you know, consistently advise other entrepreneurs who come to me uh, and make me feel very, very old <laughs> uh, is, um, you know, you're building too much. You're, um, and all the infrastructure, all the people you're trying to get on board uh, within the company, not as customers, but like, or, or services you're trying to provide, mm -hmm. you're overbuilding it. Just, it's, it should be fine to be embarrassed about what you're doing, right? Uh, you know, most recently last week, I, I talked to somebody who, who was looking for two or three engineers to hire to build their product. And I was like, you know, everything you described could be done by two interns uh, at $40 an hour because there's nothing that complicated about. In fact, that experience you create with a, with a bunch of human beings, you just to get just to get off the ground, it's going to be better than any technology you put in place. Mm -hmm. And that was a hard reality for them to swallow because they were thinking about these complex te technological approaches with AI and routing, and whereas just hire people to do it, right? Yep. So I think always thinking you won't need it and go with what you already have, you know, is, is really, really powerful as, a, as an ethos, I think, at least early stage startups, and at least, well, the companies, the type of companies I tend to build, which tend to be machine learning and data intensive. And I always remind myself, mm -hmm. you don't need to start with the all singing, all dancing machine learning right. system, just solve right. the core problem just to get off the ground, and then build towards the most sophisticated technological solution, you know, validate that there's a problem. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I think, Going to my second point, right, the, the myth, um, the myth making, the MVP based thinking actually can be misleading because mm -hmm. um, you need to just focus on basic viability, not the minimalism, right? Because minimalism is not the point. The point is actually something viability. that works. <laughs> Build a thing that's viable. It doesn't matter whether it's minimal or not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to you, it may seem too much overhead to hire 10 people um, who are not tech savvy, but get the job done just because your thinking is technologically viable. Mm -hmm. No, it's business viability, right? So, the, so I always say, you know, just, um, you won't need it. Just see what you can do without, if you don't, if you didn't have that, right? Don't, right. You know, don't hire, don't you know, just do less. <laughs> and it's a hard lesson yeah. because, you know, especially if you're in love with the idea, <laughs> it's hard to see it kind of um, almost disrespected because you didn't spend, you know, eons building it, you know, before you give it to somebody. Um, it's a very yeah. hard lesson. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because we know that in the lab and the institute, but we still have to relearn it again and again and again. Because I find the same. You know, it just and 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 the summer was great working with these students because we had a co-op program that wasn't planned. We said, sure, we'll take them, and we made it up as we went along. Yeah. And and but because we did. We learned so much. I mean, let's try that. That failed. That failed. That failed. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Now it's again, as as Mark would say, it's that opportunity mapping. Yeah. Where are where? It's like okay, that was a dead probe. That's a dead probe. That's a dead probe. Oh, 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 there's some energy here, or or as I say, is there some pull? You know, is you know, if I pull in this rope, is there any? Is there anything on the other side, right? And if there's some tension there, that's like, oh, okay, I think we've got something. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And Very then funny. and then you can go with that, but you're just sort of like nothing, nothing, nothing. I was like, whoa, okay. This is where the energy is. This is where we should go. 
And I find um, operating that kind of organic way is a bit of a leap of faith. Yeah. But the most interesting things come out of it. As opposed to yep. doing the very predictable thing, because then you're kind of like everyone else. It's like, I mean, we've learned so much in terms of online engagement and online learning and online teaching because we've done everything through Zoom. And we've, we're like big fans of Miro now. And we do this collective intelligence stuff on Miro. And, but if you'd asked me in January, I didn't know anyone who used it and using it that way. Or, you know, can you show me an example? It was like nothing. We just stumbled into it and it be, and, and we, we started playing with it. It's, it's, it's like learning how to play a musical instrument. You're just like, you're just blowing through the thing, seeing if you could just make a sound. <laughs> and it doesn't sound pretty. And then eventually you can play jazz. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny that letting go of a, of a thing you built over three months to try the next thing is just the emotional inertia that prevents you from doing that is such a hard habit to break. You know, even today for me, it's like, you know, yeah. sometimes I'll stick to something you know, and then realize in retrospect, oh, wait, I held on to that idea, that belief too long. I should have just moved on to the next thing much quicker and we would have been here faster. But, you know, um, it, it just is yeah. so something so fundamental uh, to, to the path of success, at least in, in my book. Yeah, it's it don't fall too in love with your idea. Yeah. Um, the idea is just in service of helping this person yeah, and achieve what they want. Because a person doesn't actually care about your idea. They care about <laughs> solving whatever it is that they're trying to solve, right? Yeah. They don't wake up in the morning and go like, mm, what I really need is a SimCity to do this. That's not <laughs> it. Or they're like, mm, what I really need is nobody does that. Nobody. Nope. They're saying, I'm, I want to be this person. I want to do this thing. And, you know, and, and they're jerry-rigging some sort of solution, Yeah. which is ugly. And, and it doesn't even look like it because they go, well, it's like when, when I was a VC, they go, we have no competitors. And I go, of course you do. You just, they're, they're just, they're not in the form of a company, <laughs> but there is, a, there is a competitive solution. It might be an Excel spreadsheet and a bunch of paper clips. That's exactly what I was going to say. But like, there's a solution. It's off on Excel. <laughs> yeah, right? This is off on Excel. It's like, be, especially if you're in a data intensive space like I am, almost always <laughs> look to where, where Excel is being used inefficiently. And that could be a business if you can. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so then you go, oh, okay. So what all I have to do is be better than Excel. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you go, oh, well that changes the whole thing all together. Right. It's like, Phew. it doesn't have to be all encompassing. You just have to be better than Excel in the three paper clips. Yep. <laughs> yeah. um, so but that's, it, but that's the empathy, right? But that's being, so if you have someone with that lived experience, they go, look, man, let me explain it to you. It just has to be better than this. It has to be 10% better than this. And by the way, it needs to be in our chart of accounts. So we have a budget for it. That was the other insight that I got was if there's no line item Minor. for it, yep. <laughs> there ain't no money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in theory, there's money, but the, the practicalities of how money flows in organizations, how things yeah. get and financed, it's like, oh, We'll take it out of the training budget. Cool. I will make this solution in the shape of training because yeah. there's budget for training. Or I will make the solution in the shape of X because there's a line for X and there's money yeah. in that pot for X. It's funny to mention that because I was just coaching somebody last week, uh, their early stage startup, and I was like, 
uh, they're trying to sell to enterprise and I was, you know, and they were trying to create a line item budget for this new service. And I was just like, you do not understand. Yes, it looks like you're just adding a row in Excel, but that is a Herculean task for your target customers because that's going to require, you know, five, six months of, of a champion in, your, in the company. However, if you plug it into this thing that doesn't feel quite right, but good enough, and you reshape your product message to fit that, that's your wedge in, right? Then you build confidence, you show results, and then everything comes to you. Right? Yeah, it's, um, it's a hard lesson to learn for enterprise um, selling, especially. <laughs> I, uh, early in my career, I, did, I worked a lot with the, the procurement office because <laughs> I had to figure out like, you know, I need to buy computers, I need to do that. Yeah. And so I, I, I was really good friends um, with, um, his name was Ben Chu. I remember him. He was wonderful, gregarious. And I go, hey, Ben. Hey, Margarita, how you doing? So I need to buy and, and, and being good friends with someone in procurement helped me understand the bureaucracy of how procurement happens because he was a purchasing agent. It's like, all right, so what is it that you want to buy? And, and okay, here are requirements and respects, and this is how we do it as an organization. It needs to meet. Da, 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 da. Like, I had no idea. I just wanted to buy a computer, right? And so understanding it from the inside, and I don't know how many people hang out with procurement and purchasing agents, but purchasing agents are your friend if you're an entrepreneur, um, if you, you can understand how that works. Yeah, you know, it's, um, yeah, that's a hard lesson. Um, I think maybe we should, you know, before you try to sell to the enterprise, you, you absolutely have to understand, you know, that should be the price of entry into the enterprise space. Do you understand how procurement works, how invoicing works, how, you know, and and where which line item in on the on the budget you fit into on day one yeah. versus day you know day ten. Um, right. I mean, one of the biggest friction points is you have to get into the system. Yeah. Right. It's it's sort of like so I always say you just need to want to get into a billing arrangement, a billing relationship with this entity. Yeah. Step one, billing relationship. It could be for five hundred dollars because the energy. I mean. It's that friction of like they got to set you up as a vendor and they got to do that and, 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 and all these things. But once it's done, they go to the I just I need to get another thing from Margarita. Oh, cool. She's a vendor. Boom, boom, boom. Done. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Get it. So it's, it's almost like your quest. It's like your D&D &D quest. Your first quest is you must get into the vendor <laughs> database. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that definitely right. smooths out a lot. Um, and the accounting codes that your um, expenses are going to go into. <laughs> yeah. But a good salesperson knows that, right? They, yeah. they, they should presumably know how to work that. And, and, and you need to be easy to work with and responsive yeah. on, on this stuff. And like, what's your Dun & Bradstreet number? What? I need a Dun & Bradstreet number? What's your SAMS code? <laughs> what? I need a SAMS code? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, finding that out late in the cycle can just really kill, you. kill your yeah, kill your business. Um, yeah, so so find a way to get it's some kind of billing relationship, how small, however small it is, and then just keep a pulse, because then you're just another vendor. It's there's the, the objections really go down because, well, yeah, it's just part of our ecosystem of people we do business with all the time, right? Yeah. And someone's going chink, you know, with a rubber stamp. Yeah, uh, it's Marguerite again. No big deal. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, Raj, this. Thank you for um, spending the time. Um, oh, not at all. Um, this and is really uh, fun. 
thank you for the, and, for the advice. I mean, this has been fantastic. This is really <laughs> you were supposed to give me advice. Okay, I'll catch you next time. And uh, make sure that I, I, I get that for you, because I know you're going to do something for our pin boot campers as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'll send you uh, the link to our redlining article. That, that's one thing I'll follow up with you on. It's, it's quite interesting what, we, what we're finding, because some of the things we're trying to do uh, in Northern California explicitly accounts for some of that stuff. And it's going to be interesting to see um, how to push back against some of that stuff that, you know, the legacy of redlining, you know, and this kind of exclusion still carries, you know, to, to this day, obviously. And so how do we kind of push back against that in a way that's constructive, you know, without yeah. just alienating everybody and, you know, um, uh, I, I think it's, it's always, you know, BJ Fogg says in terms of behavior design, always help people do the thing that they want to do. And in this case, people want to do the right thing. So yeah. our, our opportunity as designers and innovators is to make it easy. Yeah. Make it easy for people to do the right thing, whatever that might be. And yeah. I think there's a huge well, opportunity right now for entrepreneurs and innovators to provide that in whatever product offering that they have, whatever ordinary thing they have. And say, and by the way, bonus, you know, this product and service embodies inclusion, it embodies equity, it has fairness in it, either because by the way we manufacture, the way, by the way we engage with our stakeholders, by the way we operate. And so you being in this, business relationship with us, you help strengthen the whole ecosystem. So this is a positive externality. Right. Right. So I, I think right. there, I think the time yeah. has come for that. And I think that, that um, people are hungry for that and to be able to articulate it right now, right. I mean, like literally right now is, is the moment. So that's my call to action to entrepreneurs who are listening is, you know, make that stuff that you took for granted, make it explicit. Because that, yeah. that is peace data. That's your peace footprint, your positive peace impact. Thank you so much for your time. This is fantastic. Really good <laughs> Thank you, Raj. Okay, until next time. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Solve for X, the podcast where we discuss real solutions to problems big and small. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode for links to everything we talked about today. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave a review and hit subscribe so you're notified when the next episode goes live.